you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8, where you'll find the text printed in your bulletin. Last week we began a new series entitled, Who is Jesus? Walking through the seven I am statements of Jesus found in John's gospel. And last week I mentioned that these seven statements kind of function like seven different camera angles from a sporting event, showing us different perspectives on Jesus, reminding us that he is the greatest savior that ever there was. Before I read this passage, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Gracious God, you have told us that faith comes through hearing and hearing through your word. So Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Help us to set aside what distracts us and the cares and concerns of this world and the burdens that we bear. Would we find rest for our weary souls in you and your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These things he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Prior to being called here in 2019 as the associate pastor, I served at First ARP in Gastonia for seven years, the first four of which I was the director of youth ministry. And working with middle schoolers and high schoolers, they loved to get together and do different fun activities apart from regular youth group and Sunday school. And one of the things the students loved to do was to come up to the church at night, of course with adults, so it was normally me and Amy, uh, to play games in the dark. Hide and go seek, capture the flag, manhunt, you name it. And first, A.R.P. Gastonia is a large church, and the second and third floor of their education building has Sunday school classrooms, it has bathrooms and stairwells and closets, all sorts of great places to hide. And as we would start each time, because every, pretty much every one of the students had a cell phone, I would say one rule, no flashlights. Why? Because it's cheating, right? If you're hiding in a dark room and all of a sudden you come in with a flashlight, it's a whole lot easier to find somebody than if you're trying to feel your way in the darkness. You can probably relate to some kind of experience of being in the dark and then the impact that light has. Maybe you've gone spelunking 
kind of climbing through caves. You get to the middle of it. There's no light from the sun. And the guide says, all right, everybody turn off your flashlights. And it's pitch black. You can't even see your hand six inches in front of your face. But just turn one light on and what happens? The darkness flees. Here in John chapter 8, Jesus teaches about light and dark. But while he uses a physical metaphor, he's teaching about spiritual realities. He's telling us about spiritual darkness and spiritual light. An image of light is found all throughout John's gospel. In the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, just in those 18 verses, we find light as a noun six times and once as a verb. Think of John 1, 4 through 5, where John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And here Jesus tells us in John 8, I am the light of the world. And with these words, Jesus means to impart that he alone provides true light by which we can see in the world in which we live. Only through Jesus can we have good, clear, spiritual vision. Jesus imparts this wisdom by contrasting light and darkness. And so the first truth we see in our passage is the danger of darkness. I mean, Jesus begins, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we see this contrast between light and darkness. Following the light versus following the darkness. But then we read verses 13 through 20, and if you're like me, it seems like totally different. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and then he just starts talking with the Pharisees about testimony and bearing witness. It's like, well, what do these two things have in common? Why do we go from the light of the world to testimony and bearing witness? I have to admit, when I began my study this week, I was very confused. But as I began to read and read the text over again, I looked at the context and I started to read commentators and I began to see what's going on here. The remarks of the Pharisees in the debate with Jesus about testimony serves as an illustration for walking in darkness. But before we can examine the darkness that these Pharisees are walking in, we need to answer a very important question. What does darkness refer to in Scripture? What does it mean? You know, this is a fascinating study in biblical theology, but I don't want to get so caught up in it to drive us away from our passage, but I want to make a couple points. Darkness in Scripture can first refer refer to ignorance and folly. And so Psalm 82.5 states that the ignorant have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Darkness can also denote the realm of evil and fear. Proverbs 4.19 declares the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. And finally, darkness can refer to bondage and death. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul discusses the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And so darkness in the Bible is a multifaceted term, which causes us to wonder, well, what is Jesus talking about with darkness here? I think he's got all of it in mind. They all fit together. Darkness, then, is spiritual depravity consisting in ignorance, evil, and slavery that ultimately leads to death. The Pharisees' response to Jesus' claim of being the light of the world shows that they are actually in the darkness. 
they immediately say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're basically telling Jesus that his claims of divinity are invalid. Remember, if you were here last week, the words, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, ego, me" in the Greek, comes from the Old Testament, Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be God. The Pharisees hate this, and so they want to invalidate his testimony. I don't know about you, but over the last several weeks, I have kind of gotten consumed in the trial of Alex Murdaugh down in the lower part of the state for the double homicide of his wife and son. Watching recaps of the court proceedings each day and even some of the live trial has shown dozens of witnesses who have given their testimony. Even Alec himself took the stand. And examination and cross-examination has tried to show whether certain witnesses are trustworthy or not. Trying to either prove the credibility or undermine the credibility of a witness. You know, here the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about his testimony. They basically said, Jesus, your testimony is invalid. It should be thrown out on a technicality because, you know, Moses said you had to have two witnesses and you're just talking about yourself. You know, the irony in all this is that Jesus isn't on trial. He's standing in the temple courtyard. He hasn't been charged with a capital offense, is what Moses required two witnesses. Yet Jesus responds. It shows how his father is another witness. And that Jesus sees things clearly while the Pharisees judge according to the flesh. And then these Pharisees show their ignorance again by asking, well, where's your father? Believe that Joseph was dead at this time, and so they're like, what are you talking about? I mean, the whole point is that the Pharisees are stuck in darkness. Friends, the world apart from the life-giving light of Jesus is in darkness. As enlightened as 21st century Westerners think they are, without the light of Jesus, they're in total darkness. In spite of claiming to be on the right side of history, without Jesus, they can't see the past or the present clearly. And the danger of darkness is that it causes people to be blind to reality. Darkness brings confusion and uncertainty. Psychologists tell us that one of the most difficult conditions a person can be forced to bear is light deprivation. Darkness, in fact, is often used in military captivity or penal institutions to break down a person's sense of self. Once a person becomes disoriented, once they lose a sense of where they are, they lose all sense of their own self. Every shred of self-confidence shrivels, the spirit of resistance weakens, And they become more submissive, more willing to take directions. You see, darkness disarms a person. It can drive them to madness. Nothing does more than darkness to isolate us from the sense of human support. Darkness can separate us from reality. It disorients a person both physically and psychologically. Maybe you saw that Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers tried a four-day darkness retreat where he intended to spend the entire time in complete pitch black to better understand himself and to contemplate his future. Now, Aaron Rodgers has got some wacky beliefs about life and God and everything else, 
But I think there's a reason he only lasted two days of his attempt at four days in darkness. Physical darkness messes with us. And the same is true spiritually, but even more so. Spiritual darkness is confusing. People think they understand the world properly, but they don't. They think they see themselves fine, but they are blinded to who they really are. They believe they can understand God without Jesus, but they're wrong. Moreover, sin loves the darkness. In John three nineteen through 20, we read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. A few years ago, a journalist named Joseph Blackman wrote an op-ed on an interesting subject, why clubs are dark. Now, not your golf clubs, but like, you know, a nightclub or a bar. And he's asking, you know, why is it the lights are completely off or if at a minimum very, very low in a place like that? And what he found was interesting. He said, the more we know that we are concealed by darkness, the less self-conscious we are. Darkness hides things. Darkness, he goes on, heightens anonymity. The mask of darkness allows one to act other than themselves. Teenagers, perhaps you're prone to sinful behaviors with your friends or with a boyfriend or girlfriend under the cover of darkness. Men, maybe you're prone to look at explicit images on the internet when all the lights are turned off and no one's around. Maybe you're prone to speak poorly of people on the internet, through social media, or through emails, hiding behind the darkness of your screen. You know, the scariest part of spiritual darkness is that you are prone to miss it. That was the case for the Pharisees. They thought they were the spiritual elite, the best of the best. They thought they knew God perfectly. And Jesus says, you don't know God, you don't know me. You are lost in darkness. Their blindness leads to hardening their heart to Jesus and his Father. And Jesus goes on to say in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil. Talk about an insult. You're of your father the devil. People are spiritually blind, and they are blind to their blindness. That's what sin does. It blinds you. Perhaps you're here today, and you are blinded. You're in spiritual darkness. Or maybe you've been convinced that you're fine, but you realize through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you know what, maybe I don't see things as clearly as I thought. Or maybe you are a follower of Christ, yet from time to time you get caught up in the works of the darkness. I mean, that's what sin is, after all. Wherever you are, I pray that God gives you the ability to see it for what it is. But the hope is that darkness is not all there is. There's light. And the light is powerful. And that's Jesus' second main point in our text, the power of light. He says, I am the light of the world. What does light do to darkness? It expels it. Darkness doesn't stand a chance when even the smallest of light is introduced. There's no escaping the light. So light in that sense is powerful. So much more so than darkness. In the darkness, you fumble around, you're scared to trip and fall over something, you're reaching 
for the wall, and finally you find the light switch, and then once the lights are on, everything's fine. You can see clearly. Friends, Jesus tells us he is the light of the world. Think about the prophecy found in Isaiah 9 that we hear during Advent. Isaiah 9, 2 declares, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That light is Jesus. Here in John chapter 8, the context helps us better understand the image that Jesus is using. At the beginning of John 7, it tells us that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And this was a time where the Jews celebrated God's provision for his people while they wandered in the desert. And it also celebrated another year's harvest. And this feast included a water-drawing ceremony, an image that Jesus picks up on in chapter 7 where he talks about streams of living water. But the Feast of Booths also had a light ceremony, a lamp-lighting ceremony. On the first and probably the last evening of this festival, four massive lampstands would be lit in the temple's court of women where all of the people had access to come. These lamps would light up the whole temple, but more than that, it would light up all of Jerusalem. Remember, this is a day in which there's no artificial light, and so this was a magnificent display of light. And these lamps were a reminder of the glory cloud, which symbolized the presence and power of God. It's what we read about in the first reading. In the wilderness, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God led the people in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The light from the Feast of Booze reminded them of God's presence and deliverance during such a challenging time in their history. Yet, fast forward to the present time in our text, and the lights have gone out. Maybe the lampstands are still there, but unlit. And in that context, Jesus now stands and says, I am the light of the world. Think about that symbolism for a minute. All the types and shadows of the Old Testament, Jesus says, find their fulfillment in him. It all pointed forward to Jesus. Infinitely greater is he than the types and shadows found in the tabernacle and the temple. You see, Jesus gives light through his life. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's the good news of Jesus that throughout his life he never sinned once. He perfectly obeyed the law of God and out of an overflow of his love he willingly went to the cross taking our place. You see, sin deserves death. What we earn for our sin is death, separation from God forever in hell. But Christ paid our debt. He bore the wrath of God for the sins of God's chosen people. But his death wasn't the end of the story, no. Three days later, he rose, conquering death, hell, and the grave. Friends, we're making our way towards Easter. And in this season, it's good for us to remember the sacrifice of Christ. You and I would do well to meditate on what Jesus has done. You see, you and I tend to get really busy. And if you're around the church enough, then you become very comfortable with the things of Jesus. Yeah, 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 John, I've heard this before. I know about Jesus. I know what he did. Yep, great, let's move on. What happens is that we forget how big of a deal it is that Jesus did what he did. 
It doesn't warm our heart like it once did. It doesn't stir our affections for Christ. Our love can grow cold and, oh, that's so dangerous. Light is synonymous with salvation. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Jesus is the light of the world, helps us see ourselves for who we really are. Big sinners in need of a big Savior. Jesus, as the light of the world, helps us understand more clearly who God is. Our Father, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Friends, Jesus is a great Savior. No matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, I pray that you see Jesus as your Savior. You need Christ. A boatman and a scholar were once traveling on a boat at night. During the journey, the scholar asked the boatman, do you know philosophy? No, he replied. Do you know psychology? No. What about geology? Nope. I suppose you don't know accountancy, huh? No, not at all. Hmm, life must be pretty boring for you then. Just then a storm erupted and the waves were beating ferociously against the boat. The scholar was afraid. The boatman asked, do you know how to swim? No, he replied. That's too bad. But do you know God? No, I don't, said the scholar. To which the boatman replied, then that's even worse. You'll have no hope after death. The boatman brought out a lamp, lifted it up and asked, do you believe that this light can save you? Do you believe that this light can save you? The man began to wave the lamp, sending signals in the darkness to other boats, and eventually they were rescued. They were saved. The light saved them. Remember, Jesus is the light of the world. No form of secular psychology or secular humanism or any other form of knowledge outside of Christ is able to save. Only Jesus can save. The darkness is dangerous, but the light is powerful. Light overpowers darkness. Praise be to God. But mentally acknowledging these realities is not enough. You see, the juxtaposition that Jesus raises here is that he's dividing people into two camps. Remember, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The two camps are, one, those who walk in the light, and two, those who walk in the darkness. There's no middle ground. You're either with Jesus or you're apart from him. You're either for him or you're against him. And as we saw last week, you must come to Jesus on his terms. His terms. You can't just have him when and how you want. Jesus will have you how he wants and when he wants. So what does it look like to follow Jesus, the light of the world? Well, let's consider this light metaphor that Jesus is using. Remember, the lamps used in the Feast of Booze symbolize the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And if you paid attention to the first reading, what were the people to do when the light moved? What were they to do? They're to follow, right? Wherever it went, they were to go. Remember, they're in the wilderness, the desert. They've never been there before. They don't know where they're going. They can't follow landmarks. It's the desert. Everything looks the same. 
God set the course. They were to follow. And so it is with us. We are to follow the light, Jesus, our great Savior. We can't just settle for knowing some things about Jesus. We can't just be content with praying a prayer or you know, professing our faith before the elders at some point in our life. No, Jesus says, you're to follow me. What that means is discipleship. It's total devotion to Christ and his will for our life. Just as God, through the cloud and pillar of fire, set the course for the Israelites in the wilderness, so Jesus sets the course for your life and for mine. As one commentator declares, man must follow where the light leads. He is not permitted to map out his own course through the desert of this life. You know, Jesus says elsewhere in Luke 9, 23, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Discipleship is not just for professional Christians, for the spiritual elite. It's not just for me as your pastor or for your elders, for missionaries. Every single Christian is called to daily discipleship. Either you are Jesus' disciple or you are lost in the darkness of sin and destined for eternal separation from God in hell. There's no middle ground. Discipleship begins with confession and repentance. You know, our world hates this, but we're called to acknowledge our sin, to ask God for forgiveness, and to repent, to turn from it, and to turn to Jesus. And this only happens by the power of Christ through the work of the Spirit of Christ. Unless you're united to Jesus by faith, you don't stand a chance to be a disciple. You see, you don't just need Jesus for initial salvation. What we say in theological terms is justification, being declared right with God. You need him for growth in the Christian life, what we call sanctification, that process of being more like Jesus, where he died to sin and lived to obedience. But discipleship goes even further. You know, Jesus says here, I am the light of the world. But do you remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14? He says, you are the light of the world. Because we're connected to Jesus, the ultimate light of the world, we become lights in this world as well. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Following Jesus means letting your light shine before others in this world. Live a life honoring to God at your job, in your neighborhood, with your family, as a teacher, as a banker, as a lawyer, as a stay-at-home mom, whatever task God has given you. You know, way back when, Benjamin Franklin was very interested in helping the people of Philadelphia appreciate streetlights. He didn't call a town meeting or try to persuade the people by talking about it. He acted upon what he saw as a good idea. He hung a beautiful lantern on a long bracket in front of his house. He kept the glass polished carefully, and he trimmed and lit the wick every evening as dusk approached. The lamp helped people see the pavement ahead, and it made them feel more secure at night. Others began placing lights in front of their houses. Soon, Philadelphia recognized the need for streetlights. Friends, let your light shine before others wherever God has you. And when you're asked, share about Jesus. Actions are great. But as Romans 10 says, faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. 
So as we close, remember that Jesus is the light of the world. Light overpowers darkness. He alone can rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of light. So only one question stands. Will you follow Jesus, the light of the world? It's costly. It will cost you everything you have. But it's the only appropriate response for what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. He is worthy. And he is worth it. Let us pray.